0: Tamcho Khambab, the river that gushes east from the mouth of one of the mysterious caves that conceal the spirit of the horse at the Mafanso or the Mansarover Lake. It has emerald sand and a sip of its water can make you as strong as a horse, they say. This is the origin myth of the river in Tibet. In the Kalika Purana of Hinduism, Brahma, the Creator, pleased with the devotion of Rishi Shantanu and struck by the beauty of his wife Amogha, gifted them a child who took the shape of water forming a great lake called Brahmakund. When Parashuram, an avatar of Vishnu, committed a great sin of killing his own mother with an axe He would hold the axe in his hand forever as a reminder of his deed. He was advised by the Rishis to visit the holy lake amidst the four great mountains including Kailash. There, he repented his sin by axing down one side of the mountain and releasing the waters of the lake to help the people of Mount Kailash. It was only then that the bloodied axe came loose and the blood washed off in the newly formed river, leaving a red tinge behind. Thus Brahmaputra was born. Sangpo in China, Tamcho Khambab in Tibet, Dihang in Arunachal Brahmaputra in Assam and Jamuna in Bangladesh are the names of the same river that flows across three nations, several faiths and numerous communities, shaping the many stories of the people it meets along the way. Charting the course of nearly 3000 kilometers before merging with the Padma in the Ganges Delta and flowing into the Bay of Bengal, Brahmaputra is the life force Of the regions it cuts across while holding the ability to also be a force of destruction. In Assam, the Brahmaputra is also called Luit, the Assamese word for blood due to the red tinge it carries. Consequently it is also called Burha Luit, Burha Assamese for old indicates the ancientness of the river. Hence, it is rightly said that the Brahmaputra is older than the history of man himself.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to our podcast Living with the River. My name is Vedika. And my name is Radhika.
0: And we will be your hosts on this journey along the river Brahmaputra.
1: I want to start this conversation by talking about how we came upon this podcast and what we hope to achieve from it. So Radhika, why don't you begin this conversation and tell us a little bit about how this podcast came to be.
0: So the early seeds of this podcast were planted around July 2020 when Assam was experiencing its yearly floods. And this was a time when the yearly floods were also exacerbated a lot more because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. We were all under strict lockdown. And this feeling of helplessness that we both faced, I guess, Mm. kind of was hard to avoid and uh, it, it really did make you wonder what you could do in this kind of a situation from your own
1: spaces at homes and whatnot right Mm. I think this is around the time we started talking as well right Uh, July Mm -hmm. of 2020 and um, it was an interesting conversation because I believe your practice informed the way in which you wanted to address this situation and uh, similarly my practice informed how I wanted to address the situation Absolutely. and we came upon this podcast in that process as a way of learning ourselves as well
0: that's interesting to say because you know when we did realize that uh, we were in lockdown we also realized that it was a dangerous situation because if we did have to go out for relief work mm-hmm. uh, we would be carrying potentially this, these viruses with us hmm. to these rural areas or areas affected by the floods. And that was something that obviously was in the back of our minds. Hmm. So as a storyteller, hmm. I always was interested in looking at human communities, looking at how these societal structures worked. And uh,
1: because I have a theatre space now. So I want to ask you, what do you think about this transition from theatre to storytelling? Uh, On an audio platform? On an audio platform, yeah. It has been strange, but it has been also
0: fun because it's a fairly new medium for me. And uh, because I usually work with visual clues and visual mediums, uh When we talked about doing this podcast, I think my first thought was, "How do I recreate this river mm-hmm. uh in this audio platform um So you know then we began asking this question to ourselves, I guess of yeah. if Brahmaputra could speak, what would it say? What would he it, say <laughs> he say yeah. because Brahmaputra right.
1: I think there were a few things that we agreed on in our conversation. And one of those was that uh, through this endeavor, we hope to achieve a better vocabulary to talk about this river. And um, also the relationship that this river shares with the people and with the communities and how almost they survive with each other, giving and taking from one another. And that is something that I want to understand, uh, that we're going to understand through other people's work because we are city dwelling kids who have had minimal to no interaction with the river. I think we both realized that, you know, very
0: early on when we both noticed that the news that managed to seep out of Assam almost always talked about the destructiveness of the Brahmaputra during the monsoon months during the floods Mm -hmm. Uh, and it honestly didn't speak anything of the nurturing qualities or the complexities that uh, exist here in terms of geopolitics, in terms of how important the river is to the region. The relationship, the symbiotic relationship that the people share, the communities that live along the bank of the river share with the river, they didn't find enough mention otherwise all year long. That is when we both realized that our imagination of the Brahmaputra as well Mm. has been informed by our own individual experiences Mm. and childhood experiences as urban dwelling kids.
1: Yeah. I mean, we have had that luxury to romanticize the river and to visit the river for sunsets and small picnics sometimes. And... um, this experience that we have had, even though we do share a relationship with the river, this experience speaks nothing about the nurturing qualities of the river or the relationship that the river shares with the people um, and, you know, how the river almost dictates so many things that happen in relation to it. Um, Sometimes, like, I am really hurt that uh, mainstream media or people would only talk about the destructiveness of the river. But I'm also aware that... we Do we even know what to talk about the river? Like, do you and I, who say that we love the river, do we even have the vocabulary to talk about the river? In it is a bittersweet moment for us as mm. well, isn't it? Yeah.
0: I mean, living in Guwahati, mm. which is the largest city in the northeast of India, we have the river on one side, and it definitely captures the imagination of the people of Assam, And tourists alike. But our interaction with the river is just limited to the sunsets at the ghats. Or, you know, going on a river cruise Hmm. with Alfresco, which is the river cruise that we have here. Famous. (laughs) And it lets you flirt with the river, of course. It lets you interact with the river on those, you know, first date moments of sorts. But it really does not let you go anywhere beyond this so that I think is when we started talking about this distinction between living with the river Mm -hmm. and living
1: along the river there are some instances that instantly strike me when you say living with the river such as the harvest that happens along the river or um, the floods that happen yearly and um, as well as Construction that happens along the Brahmaputra The construction will only happen As per the time Being dictated by the river And even on a smaller instance People who cross the river In Gohati uh, On the ferry uh, Their time is also dictated By the river time
0: Well under quotes river
1: time hmm. Definitely caught our attention Didn't it?
0: Because uh, when we are talking about Even school holidays Yeah it's the river that dictates school holidays, or construction as you mentioned. So the idea, like of course the river is one of the untamable rivers that we have. And uh, that has been a well documented fact. And it cannot be held to the construct of time itself as we understand it.
1: Yeah,
0: It is Brahmaputra's time that we abide by. and. This is seen across various aspects of life and not just like one particular thing, right? Mm. Like as you mentioned, the season of harvest depends on its tides. Mm. The fish caught by the fishermen depends on the flow, depends on the direction. Mm. And Brahmaputra has been fabled to Mm. change its course over due course of time several times. Mm. I can still imagine the 1954 earthquake that is one of the biggest... Earthquakes that changed the course of Uh There have been several like that in the 1800s as well uh, So when we talk about this river time concept, yeah. we are not just talking about It to say okay here is the time here is the clock and This is the human clock. This is the river clock What yeah. do we basically mean to say by this river time construct that we are talking about yeah. is that when you are on the river there's a lot of control that you're giving up to the river Hmm. because the river takes you in its own course of time
1: also when you're living by the river absolutely
0: i think you're right
1: that that that's something that really did fascinate us um so i'm actually when you speak of river time i'm sort of transported back to a lot of literature and music that uh, speaks about the Brahmaputra and how omnipresent it has been in those things. So, Pupin Hazarika, Jyoti Prasad Garwala, uh, Vishnu Rabha, all of these people have really mentioned the river so many times. And, I mean, just how integral it is, right? Uh, and when we speak of river time, it becomes so much more real. Um, of course, um, we call Assam the land of uh, yeah, the Blue Hills and the Red River. Uh, but when you speak of river time and how integral the river is to the people, it, just, it really changes uh, the impact of the Red River, the land of the Red River.
0: All these stalwarts have yeah. used the river to actually talk about the land which is interesting in itself. Mm. And they've used either analogies or they have used metaphors that have been taken off fluid or Maha Baha Bhupen Hazarika himself has called it at times. And I think that is also coming from the fact that the river is an integral part of everyday life.
1: Right.
0: But also invisible? Exactly. Like, when we say in, invisible, mm. um, I mean, we have mentioned that it is omnipresent. When I say invisible here, I actually mean that the river is actually in the background in a lot of ways, in a lot of times. And it still steers life here, but it does not really give you a tangible presence.
1: Hmm.
0: And hence you can't see it. Hence the word invisible being used here.
1: Yeah. I mean, even with river time, I'm sorry I'm going back to it again and (laughs) again because it's so fascinating. until unless you really start to look at things from i guess that uh, point of view uh it doesn't really strike you like especially when i read about the construction i was very fascinated because i was like um you know we want to believe that uh, we can we have can maneuver nature but it can we
0: <laughs> that is the bigger question isn't it mm. i mean when we look at say even Tangible things around the river like the fish at Kasari Ghat when you're buying fish there Or even when you're having a tea at home You're you're thinking of the tea plantations But not all the time Hmm. So you're not constantly thinking of these tea plantations being nourished by the river But you know where it is coming from Or on a cold night when you are having a glass of Apong Which is the locally brewed rice beer Hmm. of the missing tribe and you are teleported to Majali, or even at an evening of an open mic when you hear a Miya poet Mm. talk about his or her own experiences through the spoken words, Mm. you are listening to this narrative woven by a person who belongs to the Sorsapuri areas, Mm. which you may have never probably you know been been to, yeah. been to or been acquainted with mm. as in such proximity mm. but is the river that kind of ties all of these different experiences together whether you want you are constantly thinking about the impact of the river or not mm. and these are honestly i'm probably talking about these really light life experiences and not mm. talking about the heavy stuff at this point but that's what i'm feeling at this point yeah. that like okay you know this this is uh, environment that I could if I'm telling a story and I have woven all of these together mm.
1: they all have the river in them but mm. it's invisible at points yeah in fact yeah. Um, so when you speak about um, the poets and how their poetry will give you um, the experience of or an understanding of uh, the sasa a glimpse if not an glimpse. understanding right of a region that you have never been to and you don't know much about except mm-hmm. for literature you've read from there. I believe, um, at least for me, this is also, this is something that I am trying to do with this podcast. Maybe, perhaps, just for myself. Hopefully, for other people. But um, there are people who really have been to places and gone to regions of the Brahmaputra that you and I have not been to. And that we, um, we can try to empathize with or try to understand, but... Um, we will not do justice in uh, speaking about uh, those experiences or those events. And um, perhaps getting these people on here and speaking to them about their understanding of what they saw and what they uh, worked on, what they have lived through. Many of them admittedly don't belong to these regions, but they have spent a considerable amount of their time working on the river. And that's what distinguishes us from them and what makes them valuable for an audience to um, learn to speak about the river. I agree. I mean, if I was to tell you about my first
0: memory of the river, I mean, I don't even have a direct memory of the river. My first experience was that we had gone to Umananda, which is this uh, small island Mm. uh, right next to Guwahati. And um, we had gone on a day-long picnic on the ferry, I, so, I still remember like a little bit of the spray of the water. Do you remember my the face. monkeys? Of course I do. <laughs> I mean, they were a huge part of that day. And uh, I remember the sand in my feet and all that. But what I most remember about that experience, my first interaction with the river, is this large gash that I had gotten because of a rusty nail on the ferry on my way back home. Ouch uh and yes so that's my first experience of interacting with the river in any capacity
1: what about you uh i don't know if i have a first memory of the river i have a first uh i guess a series of events that made me realize the presence of the river in my vicinity so Okay so my school is located in North Kohati, which we have spoken about in this podcast for those who don't know uh, and we have to cro- we had to cross the Sarai Ghat bridge to go to my school and it we did this twice every day so it became it's like a ritual to cross the bridge at a certain time every day and uh, consequently it just became a habit to notice the river because the river's um, um the uh, uh, the ebbs and flow of the river—I don't know what the word is—but um, it would it would rise and fall uh, drastically between the winters and the summers. It was really interesting. Small islands would come up, and even during the summers, um, during the monsoon, uh, depending on how much it rained, it would uh, reach a certain point of the cart or further beyond or further beyond, etc. And people would always be performing these um, like rituals and stuff. It was just a sight. And uh, I didn't realize it then, of course, I just did it because it was right there. But retrospectively, I think that would be when I um, conceive, like I, I began to realize that, okay, I mean, this is this massive body in my presence, and you start to feel its presence. If you really
0: look at it, uh, look at this massive presence that we are talking about at mm-hmm. this point, Putra does interject itself into everyday conversation, whether you like it or not. I and love whether how you we notice keep, or not.
1: <laughs> Sorry, but I love how we keep coming back to this invisibility and omnipresence.
0: I think it because it is, it does shape our lives in yeah. some ways, right? Like uh, we like we all like fish, huh. I guess. Huh. I mean, okay, that's a general like blanket statement to make, but like we are a rice and fish kind of state <laughs> i mean you know in fact like how the british would talk about the weather yeah and uh, just make it make mundane sentences seem interesting by talking about the weather like here it would be the same way but with the river where every monsoon or in fact year long the question would be kiman pani uthi se? this kiman pani uthi se? question We've all either asked or faced. Yeah. And that's how conversation goes here. <laughs> so, which translates to how much the water levels have risen this year. is the exact sentiment that I'm trying to kind of portray with this idea. I'm trying to bring into this conversation about invisibility and omnipresence. Hmm. That like no matter how much you don't notice the river, it's still very much part of our lives.
1: Right. And, uh, I mean, during the monsoon, there's, a whole network that runs through Guwahati, uh, telling people which road is flooded, which road to take, which road not to take. So. It is a constant thought. Like, mm. it is a constant thought through the minds of people
0: and has often made me actually wonder about something else entirely, uh, now to think of it, which is about the resilience of the people in the banks of this river. Mm. Uh Apart from the tagline of scenic beauty and home of this vast biodiversity that Assam is, including the one-horned rhino, I have always felt like there is a nihilistic approach to be talked about here Mm -hmm. that is reflected in the pop culture. Um, If I'm to say maybe not nihilistic, but at least a definite melancholia that you see in the movies, in the films, in the songs of the people. I've always wondered if it comes from having to deal with the yearly floods. Uh, The constant thinking of course, right? Like the yearly floods would constantly make you think about whether your house has been flooded, thinking about travelling to work in the rain, having to build up a life that may or may not be washed away by the floods next year, or being part of a region that has actually seen conflict on a daily basis for a prolonged period of time. Hmm. Hmm. Of course we don't have it as much now, but growing up I still remember how it used to be with, you know, the insurgency, hmm. with the counterinsurgency, hmm. the state control, or even the illegal yeah, of immigration <laughs> of Spa. And I think there was a sense of alienation that is not unfamiliar to the Northeast in general. Hmm. Uh, but this idea of nihilism that I'm talking about And the idea of melancholia is attached to this feeling that most of us have had or still do of having no control over these circumstances. And that could, you know, uh, become... This perception could become part of people's
1: everyday lives Mm. when it is over Mm. a long period of time. Um, I do agree with you in that... uh, In that uh, the resilience of the people along the Brahmaputra is... uh, uh, is something to be talked about. But I'm just wondering if I want to call it nihilism for the reason that um, that it is resilience, you know, that the fact that people who uh, live in Kazuranga or Majuli or um, other regions that flood, they have adapted to these floods. They build their house on cells. They've learned how to cultivate the land. They have learned how to navigate the floods. And uh, I mean, even in Guwahati, even though that's a much smaller example, on zoo road when it's fl- when it used to flood all the time people have boats in their houses right so yeah we can laugh at that but that is um, like where g- we're going to work come what may kind of a situation so um
0: no i agree with you of course yeah. like i i feel like resilience and this nihilism or i mean more than nihilism i'm actually attracted to the word melancholy at yeah. this point more hmm. but i think they are th- Two sides of the same coin at this point for me. And I would like to explore it more in this podcast and find out. I, I would be love to prove wrong at this point. Mm. But like, you know, when I talk about this, I don't mean that melancholy like, is any anything negative for me. Mm. I just feel like it has become part of a fabric of life here. Where there has been cons- like consistent, uh, you know, occurrences. That have shaped people's life, that have made them look at pop culture in a way Mm. that reflected this sadness. But then, I don't think, I mean, when I say this, I'm of course talking about like pop culture from the 1950s and 60s or even through
1: till like 1990s. But that's the thing, I don't completely disagree with you because I do recognize what growing up in a region of conflict does. And it does rewire your brain. Right. And Because we uh, are all bodies of conflict at this point, right? Like Can you tell me what you mean by this? Like what does what does bodies of conflict mean to you? Right. So bodies of conflict,
0: the way I interpreted it, I see it in two ways. One is a physical manifestation of the body, right? Like the physical, mental, emotional manifestation in the individual in a conflict zone of how you govern yourself in a conflict region. The other one is the idea of the body and how this is actually, this is when I'm talking about the collective memory of a community Mm. that has seen conflict over a long period of time. This may be generational conflict or structural conflict or even direct violence. And if it has been, the community has been exposed to it for a prolonged period of time, there is... A certain idea of how you should govern yourself to authoritative figures. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, this can also become a very powerful expression of dissent, change and rebellion against the same authoritarian figure. So that's what I mean when I say bodies of conflict. Okay, let me give you an example of these two interpretations. Yeah, The first one, when I talk about the first interpretation of uh, the physical... Manifestations of the body. Uh, so when Kashmir went through a violent phase from 1998, from 1988 to the early 90s, when there was a h- huge strife between the center, the Kashmiri Pandits, the indigenous communities, right. uh, even post the direct violence phase, oh. a lot of people suffered through PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And what had happened was, uh, this was also depicted in the film *Heather*, which was an adaptation from Hamlet. And uh, it was beautifully shown because there was this man who stood still in front of his house, unable to go into the house. And when another person in the film asks, uh, they, they were all having chai, and like another person asks, what had happened to this guy? Why can't he go inside? Mm-hmm. This guy, the other friend who was having child with him, says, okay, wait, give me a minute. Goes to the guy who's standing in front of his house, taps him on the shoulder, checks his body and says, ha, Jao," mm-hmm. As in go. That's the only time when he moves. And that was a physical manifestation of what violence does to you in a conflict region. Mm-hmm. That you become accustomed and conditioned mm-hmm. to the kind of behavior that is expected of you by the state or the oppressor or the authoritarian figure. Yeah. In the second instance, the second interpretation, uh, so let's let's talk about like this ethnic identity for example, okay? Mm. Uh, a person staying out of the conflict region with the same ethnic identity. Mm. And the person situated in the conflict region with the same ethnic identity Mm. would react very differently 20 years later also. You know, like uh, the person who's out of the conflict region.
1: So you're saying that you have to experience it in order to...
0: Yes, you have to. So the collective memory that binds Mm. you is not just of your ethnic identity, right? Right. It, It is also lived experiences within that moment, within that context. Mm. So what would happen is you could of, of course empathize from afar, mm. but you would probably not understand the daily dealings mm. and, the,
1: and how f- violence becomes an intrinsic part of you. So this inherent sense of fear is because our bodies of, as people who live in conflict regions are always on the line. So it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter that you don't hold a political opinion. You know, you're know, you apolitical. It matters that you are situated in a region where your body could potentially be harmed. And so people are just wired like that. You know, you grow up with that. I am scared. I'm not as scared as my mother is. But you are scared to go out, to go out after a certain time, etc. True, very true. I mean if you look
0: at within our lifetimes itself, Mm. one of the biggest bombings that Assam faced in 2008 shook us all. And for at least uh, half a year, Mm. post the 2008 bombings, there was a
1: major fear of public life, per se. Mm. So, I mean, I I actually, I do agree with you. I just believe that there is a resilience in all of this. Um, However, it's very interesting when... The concept of loss of control that you spoke about and uh, resilience when that is juxtaposed with uh, the festival of Bihu which celebrates life which celebrates new harvest and which encourages a fresh outlook towards life Talking
0: about how resilience and melancholia may be two sides of the same coin this actually brings me to something that we were talking about of how The river that gives life also holds the power of disruption, devastation and destruction. Mm. Where, you know, we were both wondering how we can actually navigate this conversation. And as a law student, Vedika, I would like to actually ask you this question of how do you feel we can actually negotiate with the river And how the river and the people
1: build that sort of a relationship. Right. Um, This is a a wonderful question because I love uh, to read about this. And I hope at some point we can address this in our podcast. But, um, so... um, I wanna start by talking about a concept called restorative justice. Now, restorative justice, legal studies are interspersed with this concept. And um, what it aims at doing is uh, restoring harmony and balance wherein everywhere where harm has taken place. And the first step towards that is, of course, addressing the victim. But in the process, you also address the perpetrator of the, of the crime. And uh, try to ensure, in some ways, That no further harm is caused. Right? No further. uh, Okay, if I'm getting this correctly, like, please stop me if I'm uh, not.
0: So, if I'm to understand the idea of restorative justice, how
1: is it different from retributive justice? Retributive justice is the prison system the police system wherein a wrongdoer is punished for their actions and that is meant to deter wrongdoing whereas restorative justice is um restoring uh balance and harmony it is uh, doing justice in a in a different way not by punishment so it is would you say it is a more holistic approach to justice? Yes, I would say that because I am extremely biased towards restorative justice. <laughs> so I would definitely say that. But there are people, of course, who have different arguments. So I'm not going to discount that. Um, so, okay, so restorative justice in this scenario, why that is relevant is because when you talk about restorative justice between people, right, in a wrongdoer and a person who has exp- uh, who is um, a survivor of that wrongdoing, in that event... Uh, we can the answers are more straightforward uh, in that you build relationships there's conversation there is community building exercises etc but the core of this concept lies in looking at harm as something that can be restored that can be um to some extent undone and um a basically a reconciliation of sorts can be reached but when you bring a natural body into this equation right like the brahmaputra um, in that event i'm interested in uh, uh, learning about two tangents right the first is the harm that we inflict on the brahmaputra, and how do you address that harm? I think there is a fairly straightforward answers to that. However, at the same time, there is harm that the brahmaputra inflicts on the people, and um, how do you how do you address that kind of harm? And what do you do in that event? Um, there is, of course, literature on this, uh, and people have spoken about this. But I'm uh, very excited to speak to a few people and try to understand. Um, if those outlooks are tenable I think that's a very interesting point that you bring out because
0: as a storyteller for me uh, working with human connections talking about identity and memory which is something that I work with Mm. uh, otherwise um, when I look at restorative justice from the lens that you have provided me I do realize that, you know, this emotional angles or like angles of well-being that I personally hold very dear to my heart in my own work, they are also applicable in legal processes and legal aspects and they are not mutually exclusive concepts. Mm -hmm. And I'm very, very excited to find out how they overlap and interject themselves into these conversations and also
1: interact with each other. Okay, so throughout this conversation, we have broadly spoken about the four themes that we would like to speak about in our podcast, starting from the river's geography, uh, as well as uh, the ecosystem of the river, and the impact that it has had on the lives of the communities it passes through, Uh, moving to the concept of river time, and how time moves differently on land and on the river. And... uh, Uh, Thirdly, the inherent sense of sustainability and resilience, which a life along the Brahmaputra shapes. And finally, the self-identity and collective memory, which explores the narratives that tell a human story, displaying the historical, sociopolitical and cultural aspects that are attached to the river.
0: We've both approached the river and the people who have lived with the river as eager learners just Simply looking to understand the impact this vast, almost enigmatic being called the Luit or the Brahmaputra or Sangpo, Tamchok Kambab or Jamuna, however you would like to call it, this one river has over us and how we have also impacted the river in due course of time. So, in summarizing this episode, I would like to basically point out that The podcast that we have embarked on is generally aimed at looking at both academic and artistic works that have the river as a central object or theme. And over the course of this podcast, we have various people from different walks of life who have either dedicated themselves to the river or have been touched by the river at some points in their life, thus talking about people who have lived with the river. (laughs) And uh, through our conversations with them, we would like to basically understand that, as we had asked the question before, right? If Brahmaputra could speak, what would it say? (laughs) And perhaps through these works of the people that we have on this podcast, those questions are already answered. And... uh, we are eager to find out what they are.